Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wisdom of Friends podcast. Thank Thank you for tuning in. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. This is a podcast where you get to learn more about your friends and community, their wisdom, their trials and tribulations, timeless insights and their secrets. Now, let's get into the show. Please welcome your host, Cal Aras. Hello, uh, folks. Uh, welcome to Season 4 of uh, Wisdom of Friends, and I'm your host, Cal Aras. And today, I'm really excited to be introducing you to a multiple international award-winning speaker, Simon Bucknell. Simon was a finalist in the 2017 World Championship of Public Speaking in Vancouver, Canada, placing second out of more than 30,000 speakers across the globe. As a full-time speaker, facilitator, and coach since 2008, Simon has helped professionals from all walks of life. His career background spans executive headhunting, blue-chip corporate brand strategy consulting, plus a stint working in the House of Commons. He has featured as an expert commentator on BBC News, BBC London Radio, Channel 5 News, and on international radio networks around the globe. Simon holds degrees from Oxford University and the London School of Oriental and African Studies. He's a fellow of the UK Professional Speaking Association, the Royal Society for the Arts, and the Visiting Fellow in Professional Skills at London's New College of the Humanities and Cambridge University. In 2013, he was awarded the Freedom of the City of London. Friends, this is a fascinating interview with Simon Bucknell, who helps high-achieving professionals to connect, influence, and inspire through the spoken word when presenting, pitching, and in key meetings. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. So without further ado, let's welcome the one and only Simon Bucknell. So, good morning, uh, Simon. Welcome to another episode of uh, Wisdom of Friends Show. I'm really excited that you took the time to be on this program. And let me start off with my first impressions of you. I watched you for the first time giving a talk and actually competing at the 2017 International Toastmasters Convention in Vancouver, Canada. And by the way, congratulations on coming second place amongst 30,000 speakers around the globe. And I knew in that instance, that uh, you are a powerful, mesmerizing, and charismatic speaker with amazing insights and wisdom that uh, we definitely want to have you on the show and have you share uh, your experience with our audience. So again, thank you for taking the time to be on the show. Cal, delighted. Really good to be on the show and appreciate your comments about Vancouver. It was quite a ride and uh, a six-month journey to get there. So it was uh, happy memories. Excellent. And so the way we start off our show, uh, Simon, is uh, with a very simple and a profound question of our guest, and that is, what is your favorite quote or philosophy that you live by, and how have you applied it to your life? At the risk of getting all ancient Greek on you, I think for me, the, the best answer to that question is to say, be true to yourself. 
I think, and, and that's not a, a binary thing. You know, we, we in a sense, de- deceive ourselves all the time and convince ourselves that this is a good idea. And then when we sit back, we think, maybe it's actually, maybe I, I didn't really go down the right path on that one. But doing everything you can to be true to to oneself. And for me, that means that means constantly reviewing in your own mind whether you, you gave the best that you could in a situation, whether you're doing something for the right reasons or not, whether you feel you can not just look people in the eye amongst those that are very close to you, but but also, I think most importantly, look yourself in the mirror and feel good about the kind of life that you're leading and the kind of contribution you're wanting to make and the kind of impact you're wanting to have. And of course, that, that theme of, of seeking to be honest with yourself, which of course is, is not easy. It sounds so straightforward and obvious, but actually it can be brutal. Very strongly influenced one of the speeches that I gave in the World Championships in the semi-finals, in fact. Um, so that's something I believe in very, very strongly. And, and I think it's something that stretches right back to my childhood because my parents were always ones for, for being honest as best you could. <laughs> you know, that is so great. And I totally agree that there is so much of value that in our personal experiences that people underestimate their own uh, value of their stories. And it can have such a profound impact in uh, public speaking as well as uh, relating to other people. No, that is so great. So my next question to you is, and I'm curious here, did you grow up in London and uh, what where did you? Uh, what was your childhood uh, experience like? So, if you can share it with our audience, <laughs> I def- definitely did not grow up in London. I'm, I'm I'm in London now. I've been living here for some years. But my childhood, uh, we moved around a lot. My father's a doctor, and my mother's a teacher by background, and 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 we moved a great deal when I was young. We must have moved about house about fourteen times by the time I was five, six years old. So we spent time in different parts of the UK, but. But, but some of my most formative years were spent in Saudi Arabia. So I grew up in Jeddah or just outside Jeddah on the road to Mecca. And uh, depending who's listening to this podcast, then it may well be we've got folk listening to this uh, in uh, the good kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And so I, my earliest memories are of the, of, the, of the mullah and the call to prayer for the minaret. And we lived in a compound about, about 40 minutes you know, west of Jeddah. My father was a doctor in one of the hospitals there. And I remember the time of the Hajj always being a very busy time in terms of traffic and also in terms terms of uh, work for my father and so that that's actually a very uh, important early memory for me we had six seven years living there but but for a good chunk of that time I was at a uh, at a boarding school in the UK just outside Birmingham in central England about as far away from the sea as you can get in Britain and that that experience in fact a story from those days in my uh, at that boarding school when I only saw my parents um, uh, every few weeks rather than every day uh, informed one of the other speeches in fact it may well have been the speech that you saw, Cal, in the world final. Um, so that's that was my background. It was it was very diverse in lots of ways. But but actually, once I hit the age of about ten or eleven, my parents moved back to the UK, and then I had real stability. And I spent the rest of my teenage years uh, living, say, just outside of Birmingham in a in a small town. When I first moved to London, which was as a postgrad, I did a master's in Chinese studies after my undergrad. Moving to London was a shock. I had never lived in a city this big, uh, and I. I think anyone who's had the experience of growing up either in the countryside or or even in the suburbs or in a small town knows that when you move to the big city, it's exciting, but it's also pretty intimidating. And, and that was certainly the case for me. 
Oh, that, that is uh, incredible. Yes, and I can totally relate to uh, what you just share, shared about growing up in a big city. I mean, I, I was uh, I, I was born in Mumbai, and I kind of grew up, my mm. spent my first 20 years in Mumbai, so it is uh, quite a hectic uh, way of living compared to, like, if you live in the suburbs or on the countryside. Uh, yes. That is a great. Now, now, did you go to Oxford, if I understand it correctly? I did for undergrad. That's right. Yeah, I worked super, super hard in my final years at school. I had a couple of very inspiring school teachers who profoundly influenced the way, actually, not just the way I thought about my studies, but but influenced the way in which I work with groups to this day, actually. I, I still have in my mind two individuals in particular who 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 really, they did, well, in the case of my history teacher, and, and history was the subject that I studied at Oxford, and he was the one that really encouraged me, Julian Ford, to to apply. I remember he, he didn't he didn't just teach history, he lived it. <laughs> you know, he made the past present. And he was a most extraordinary man. And and so, yes, I did. I went to Oxford and I made some fabulous friends there. And I always remember the, the parting words from my school teacher. He said, Simon, I hope you have a fantastic time in Oxford. I'm sure you will. He said, but you know what the best thing is? The best thing about your days as a student is you'll come out the other end with six friends and you will be so close. You will be friends for life, and and you would do anything for them, and they would do anything for you. And you know what? He's absolutely right. And in fact, I met up with one of them just this afternoon, just forty five minutes ago. We went for a walk around the park with our with our children, his two daughters, and my daughter and son. And we live about half a mile from each other here in London. And you know, we'll be lifelong friends. And he's one of about six very very close friends that I that I have from that time. So it was a formative period for me, my days in Oxford. Now, that is so great. And I'm curious about Simon. I believe I heard you share this on one of your uh, videos or blogs on your site talking about what an influence it had on you when you, st- when you were studying at Oxford. And you mm. had all these amazing speakers come in from the, from the realm of uh, academia and, of course, politics yes. and business. Yes. And yes. you were fascinated by that. So could you share a little bit about how did your passion for public speaking speaking began was that the defining moment for you when you watched these speakers or how did that journey began for you i I think in terms of seeing people speak rather uh, as in classic public speaking you know not debating not theater not singing you know just a person standing up and offering a view on life i think those days in oxford were very inspiring i I remember my deputy master from school took me to go and see fw de clerk speak at the royal albert hall in the in the a year or two after the end of apartheid and and that was a very significant experience for me but i was still at school then but but in oxford we had an amazing array of speakers visit and and i've been exposed to a little bit of debating at school and i quite enjoyed it of course plenty of people didn't but I, i did quite enjoy it and i did quite a bit of drama but i've quickly found that i wasn't very good at adopting other people's persona i think it's a wonderful gift and skill for those that can i I always found that a bit awkward so i found myself being a bit clunky as an actor um but but what i remember a couple of experiences in particular in oxford that made an an impression on me one was yasser arafat came to speak and i first of all i remember the size of his security detail uh, but what i also remember was him uh, he spoke in arabic and we had simultaneous translation of course uh, headphones and so on and about three quarters of the way in, he just switched into English. And it was an extraordinary moment because you could see people around the audience kind of checking their headphones as if something, you know, the, the translation had suddenly stopped as people, and it took people a few seconds to click as he was communicating uh, an important point in English. And, and it, was, it was a very... Uh, 
it was a very it was a moment that really hit me in terms of audience connection and he got spontaneous applause uh, after that passage about, about 30 seconds or so the other experience was was in a sense uh, quite the opposite in that it was for humorous effect and it was given by the actor who played Q in the James Bond films he's now died but he came to speak about his career as an actor and of course there were lots of questions about various Bond films you know Goldfinger and the spy who loved me and so on and and somebody towards the end asked what about you and gadgets because of course as anyone that's seen the Bond films know Q is the mastermind of all the gadgets and the smart cars and the you know watch that turns into a Mercedes or whatever and he said oh gadgets he said oh I hate gadgets can't bear them ah ghastly <laughs> and he's just the place erupted you thought okay there's a guy who managed to put on a pretty good act um, and it was he was very very entertaining speaker there, there were lots of others as well top class cricketer I remember King Hussein of Jordan came to speak of course lots of politicians um, but it was it was and here's the thing and I think this this sits with me to this day I look back it was an extraordinary thing to to encounter these people live face to face they were right there they were in the arena you know it was like having a, a front row seat at the Olympics or at a top football match it's not the same as reading about it in a newspaper report or even watching it on tv although that's not a bad substitute being in the room and actually experiencing these remarkable people from all walks of life live was was terrific and quite quite different from anything i'd ever experienced through my studies or anything i'd seen on television and i think that to this day remains a very important lesson for me which is that when you're speaking whether you're pitching for business or you're in a meeting with clients I mean, of course telepresence nowadays is becoming ever more sophisticated and, and and phone and skype and so on of course that that stuff is all valuable but there is something about actually being in the stadium with somebody and it's a very very powerful moment, uh, which I think is perhaps one of the reasons why I believe very strongly in the power and the value of public speaking as one aspect of that face-to-face -face live communication. I completely agree with you. And I think what you just shared here, just to highlight, I mean, the art of connection and connecting with the audience, it's such an important aspect. And yes. it, it's you know, a lot of people, even the experienced public speakers need to be reminded that that is indeed uh, the defining factor of what an impactful speech can be, especially with executives yes. who are trying to connect with clients or customers yes. or trying to pitch their ideas. And it makes such a profound difference when you can have that background of relatedness with your uh, audience. Uh, yes. The other thing I'm curious about, uh, Simon, is uh, you mentioned about uh, your experience uh, working as a senior executive headhunter and uh, you had to give this uh, leaving uh, speech, which didn't go really yes. well. And that <laughs> uh, started your journey on really looking into like mastering this domain of public speaking. So could you mm. walk us through that journey as to how did that begin? What did you end up doing? If you could break down the steps for our audience so that, you know, yes. it gives them the inspiration that it is possible. It's not the domain of a naturally gifted speaker. Oh. Uh, any Anybody can literally uh, build these skills. Absolutely. It really is a skill, not a gift. And it's it's a tragedy that there are many people that make the assumption that it is a gift, not a skill. And it, and it can be learned and you get better. For me, I'd done my undergrad in history. I then did my master's in Chinese studies and then began my career in, in technology headhunting. And I did ask myself some serious questions about how I'd be using my knowledge of 15th century British history as I was talking to senior execs in enterprise software and private equity executives and so on. Because the firm I worked at was, was focused on search 
search, not selection. So these are all very, very senior people that the firm was recruiting. So it was all done below the radar. It was it was private calls. It was confidential meetings and so on. There's no advertising. And after my initial few weeks of induction and training and so on, it came to my first phone call in that job. And this was back in October, November 1999. And I had to uh, make this phone call to someone really senior. And I was terribly nervous. And I even had a script. And, uh, I, you know, the, the script read, hello, John, have I caught you at a convenient moment? That was the plan. That was what I was set up to say. And then a few sentences after that. But I was so anxious about making this phone call. This is a phone call. I'll come to the speech in a moment. But the, but in this phone call, I completely fluffed it. And if, if you're listening to this and thinking, well, you know, scripts are important. Well, scripts are okay, but not if they become a straitjacket uh, rather than a guide. And, and what you plan to say and what you actually say aren't always the same thing. So instead of saying, hello, John, have I caught you at a convenient moment? What I actually said was, hello, James, where have you caught yourself which is not the best of opening lines to a man you've never met before. My colleagues in open plan office were falling about laughing. So I invested a good deal of time over the next couple of years at the firm, improving my skills on the phone, largely by force of practice. I was making dozens of calls a day. You just had to be there in the market talking to people. And it's, of course, it was a wonderful business lesson for me, the power of picking up the phone and actually speaking to people rather than hiding behind emails. Anyway, fast forward to my leaving drinks. I was by that point pretty good on the phone, but I hadn't done any public speaking because you you don't really in in headhunting. It's mostly interviews and phone calls. And so, and I certainly hadn't had any formal training or any coaching. And it came to my leaving drinks. And I was handed a very nice gift by, by my boss who said a few words. And there was about 40 people watching. And then I took the gift and I thought, well, that's it. I'll, you know, we'll, we'll head off and we'll go for some drinks that evening. And that would be all. And of course, someone called out from the back of the room, speech. And I hadn't prepared one. I hadn't had any practice and so on. So I, I, what I remember was forgetting to breathe properly. And it's, I think it's true for so I've worked now with well over 25,000 people on this stuff over the years. I've been full time in speaking and coaching and, and, and facilitation since 2008 i've met thousands of people on and i think it is one of the things i've found is that for for most if not absolutely every individual there's a pet nightmare symptom it's the thing you feel most conscious of when you're under pressure your face going red sweaty palms mind racing twit nervous twitch shaky knee or whatever for me i stopped breathing properly and I, i forgot to breathe out and it sounds a bit strange but when you're speaking remembering to actually breathe as you go you can easily screw that up and and i found myself hyperventilating over a desk in front of all these colleagues and i the the key moment was for me in that thinking to myself this is so painful i can't afford to feel like this in the future there must be a way to improve i can't believe that because it's not something i even dislike doing actually i'm perfectly okay with public speaking i'd like to do it it wasn't that i hated it of course many people do hate it but so I thought, well, there must be a way to improve. And so I started searching around. And, and that's how I came across Toastmasters International. And so I joined a public speaking club. And uh, without realizing it, I had in my own mind convinced myself that getting better at public speaking was a skill, not a gift, because otherwise I would never have joined a speaking club. I'd have just said to myself, I screwed up my leaving drink speech. That's it. Can't do it. Can't speak without notes. 
best avoid it in the future. And I think tragically, there are too many people in this world who, who, who make that mistake. And it's just not true. So I joined a public speaking club. And, and to this day, I've always seen public speaking clubs as being a bit like gym membership for communication. You know, the more you invest in it, the more return you get. And I went consistently twice a month for for a good two years or so and the impact it had on my confidence and clarity of thinking and my impact in not so much speeches because I wasn't in a job that involved public speaking by that point but the impact it had on my clarity of thinking when on the phone and also meetings and offering feedback to in team members that I was managing and so on was enormous and uh, so I think that that's how that experience had an impact on me because had that not happened I would certainly never have sought out a public speaking club I would never have joined Toastmasters and and the experience I've had within Toastmasters over the years has well it's a different story but the that, that then has uh, taken me into the actual career and profession I pursue to this day. No, that is very inspiring. And I know you went on to uh, speak, uh, be the representative for UK, Ireland and uh, Britain at the TM International uh, Convention in Washington, D.C. at that. Uh, That's thing. right. And yes. then, uh, yeah, just for the benefit of the audience, Simon uh, Bucknell is... Uh, helps uh, high-achieving professionals now to connect, influence, and inspire through the spoken word uh, when presenting, pitching, and in key meetings. And his career background spans... uh you know, executive headhunting, blue chip corporate brand strategy. And also he's been featured as an expert commentator on BBC World News, London Radio, Channel 5 News, and also a lot of international broadcast radio networks around the globe. And uh, my next question to you is, uh, Simon, uh, you know, we have had uh, many successful people on this show. And uh, one of the distinct uh, through line that we've noticed is they often view uh, obstacles or challenges as not as a failure, but as a stepping stone towards uh, greater success. And this was definitely one of your uh, challenges that you overcame and went on to uh, succeed at the highest level. Now, my next the question that I have for you is when you look back at your life, what would you say was the turning point or a breakthrough success moment for you, which was, you know, when life was never the same again, you know, that people have mm. that breakthrough moment. And what was, uh, mm. is there is there a moment in your life that you could uh, perhaps share with our audience? <laughs> there is. And it's, it's a moment I, I haven't often spoken about, actually, not particularly by design, but because it's, it's, it's rarely asked. It, it has actually come from one of the early speech contests that I did. In fact, it came in Washington, which, which you mentioned a moment ago, Cal. So in 2006, August, I, I'd taken well, through early 2006, I'd put together a speech through in, within the Toastmasters at club level, thinking, well, I'll put this speech in and, and let's just see what happens. Wouldn't it be nice to do it at club level? And it just kept winning. And the way the competition works within Toastmasters, as, as, as listeners may be aware, is it's a straight knockout. So the winner goes through to the next round and then the next round and the next round and you start with 30 odd thousand speakers and you end up with semi-finals of about 90 speakers and then a world final in those days of, of nine anyway so i got all the way through to washington and in those days when you got into the semi-final by this point it was i think round five of six you had to give a completely different speech and and I, and I was in that position. I still had my day job very much. And I thought to myself, wow, I, I've got the opportunity to represent Britain and Ireland in the semifinals of the World Championships of Public Speaking. I may never get this opportunity again. And I've only got seven minutes. And I, I really did think long and hard, what, what, would I, what do I really want to speak about? 
And, and what I did was I, I, I took a, a big leap of faith and drew on some experience from my school days, which had been very, very difficult for me, um, which resulted to from some very, um, how best to describe this, but some very painful and difficult experiences at, at, at the hands of an abusive school teacher. And I decided to put together a speech about being resilient in the face of that and speaking out. And and the message of the speech, the speech was called The Day My Wall Came Down, which was all about, and I linked it back to the day of the Berlin Wall and people stepping up. And I decided that from my own experience, there was something I wanted to say, look, now I speak. And every day I speak, another battered old brick comes tumbling down through the ivy, thinking about one of the walls at the school that I was at. And, and I think, frankly, and it may be even the case right now for someone listening to this, that the speech polarized people because some people were very uncomfortable, I think, with the, with the, the topic. And this is back in 2006. And there's nothing explicit or gratuitous in the speech, but the audience has left in no illusion and left in, in no doubt as to the fact that there was an abusive school teacher and that it was, it was a very, very, um, it was a very, very personal and, a, and a, a story of real vulnerability on my part, but with the message of saying, you know, the power of speaking out. And, and I knew for a fact that, that for some people wouldn't, were just not happy with it. Other people felt that it was, it was profoundly inspiring. So that was what gave me the conviction to say, you know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to put it out there because I think this is important. It's the one, it's one story I thought I would never never speak about publicly and i thought the hell with it i'm going to do it and i didn't win the contest i didn't come in second i didn't come third i didn't place in the contest and you know i stepped off stage knowing i'd done a good speech i'd done it to the best of my ability the results came out and there's initial feeling oh didn't place and then afterwards i thought you know what that is the most important speech i've ever done i have no regrets because and, and to this day it remains the case i think to look back and i found myself thinking if i can do that if I can step up on a stage, I mean, forget the fact it happened to be in a competition, it doesn't matter. I, I stepped up on a stage under all that kind of pressure and a you know, mile from the White House and this big thing and people have flown over from Britain to come and support me and from Ireland to support me. My parents were in the room. Yeah, amazing experience. And, and I thought if I can tell that story with good intentions and in the semifinals of the World Championships of Public Speaking, anything's possible. And it was, and from a personal I think from a personal, in a sense, selfish point of view, it really did banish uh, some demons for me. And I think it enabled me to confront some of my darkest fears, if you like. And, and it, was, it, was an, it was extraordinarily cleansing for me, I think, as an experience, even though that wasn't the reason for doing it in the first place. I think that's what happened. And, and I've, I've never, going back to a point about question about a turning point i've certainly never seen public speaking in the same way since and i'm not sure i've seen my own life in the same way since because it was it was liberating and i think for anyone when you've got challenges you're dealing with and there's all sorts of different ways of doing it it might involve speaking out about it, it might involve talking privately to a good friend it might involve writing i mean people i know who keep very very in, intimate detailed journals or it might be it might be venting or channeling in some other way um i, I think it, it's it's it, perhaps the writing of a novel eh? all sorts of different avenues but it that's finding a way in which to liberate yourself from from something which might have been lurking there in the back of your mind, like a like a toad, is is a is a wonderful thing to to do, and I feel very fortunate to have the opportunity to do that. Um, so that was that was that's my moment, I think. 
Now, that is so inspiring. And I would like to commend you for being so vulnerable in front of like uh, mm. thousands of people to really uh, talk about something that uh, would make a lot of other people comfort- uncomfortable, but as well mm. as yourself. And, mm-hmm. and the yeah. fact that you took that leap of faith and then that really helped you banish your own inner demons. And, and that kind of like became a launching pad for you to take on even bigger challenges of life. And now mm. when you look at uh, life today, I mean, you're one of the top uh, speakers in the, on the planet today. I mean, what an incredible journey that's been. And and now you help uh, other people, including executives and uh, people of all walks of life, improve their public speaking skills and to make a real impact in their own individual domain. So I also understand that you have this incredible course that you offer online. It's called the High Impact Speaking System for Executives uh, to help yes. them influence customers and clients. So could you tell us yes. a little bit about that as to how did you go about designing that system and what are some of the benefits of that system that uh, people can uh, participate in and learn more about? Yes, absolutely. Delighted. It's it's a, It comprises nine core modules of of video-based coaching focused on on high-impact speaking, as you say. So there's 71 videos, so they're all quite short, ranging from a minute through to to 20 minutes. And in the development of it, I actually worked closely with one of the top product creation experts in the UK, Peter Thompson, whom listeners may well have heard of. Peter Thompson, fabulous, fabulous individual. So I worked very closely with him in the development of it. And it is all around helping... uh, any individual who is serious about wanting to raise their game in the impact they, they achieve, whether they are experienced professionals looking to make tweaks and adjustments and refinements or somebody starting from from, from the ground floor up because it's easy to cherry pick. Uh, it's available online and, and it's um, something where people can dip in and out to relevant sections, be that storytelling or your elevator pitch or projecting confidence or clarity of messaging. Or it can be done clearly as a, as a systematic working your way through um, uh, from from video one through to, to to video seventy one, there's FAQs in there and interventions and all sorts. So it's actually only just launched uh, a matter of uh, two two and a half weeks ago. So it's it's pretty new. I should say that that, that dates this recording. I suppose it's it, it launched <laughs> launched very recently. Um, and uh, yeah, there's information about it on highimpactspeaking.com. There's a simple video which people can view if they want to have a look at it and, and or have a get a bit more information about it and then. Um, it's uh, and then we can we can have a chat directly about that if it's of interest to people. Great, excellent. Great. We'll include that in the show notes as well. And I've seen some previews of that, and some also some reviews from other users. And uh, it's been really highly uh, recommended uh, by the users of the system. Uh, my next question to you, Simon, is, and this is taking a walk down the memory lane here. Uh, what? Who were your mentors growing up and whom did you like look up to or wanted to emulate or what did you, what about them fascinated you? Were there anybody uh, that you want to give a shout out to you and that comes to mind? <laughs> well, certainly from uh, up until my university days, uh, the two people that inspired me the most were my, uh, were, were two history teachers. One, Julian Ford, who I mentioned because of his style of, of delivery, who's so, uh, he, he lived the subject. And the other was uh, actually a teacher who, well, he died a few years ago, um, sadly, but he, he was a very different sort of character, Stephen Lee, super structured thinker. Whereas 
Julian Starr was very much one of, 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 of charisma and passion and emotion and bringing his life through stories and so on and making you feel like you're there in 1832 outside Parliament, you know, when the king's charging around with the politicians. Uh, Stephen Lee's approach was uh, deeply structured thinking, a former civil servant, mapped everything out, big advocate of mind maps. I've since met Tony Buzan, which has been a great experience because, um, because Stephen Lee, as I say, and anyone that's put together a meaningful chunk of communication to be delivered through the spoken word will know the importance of good structure and i got that from from stephen lee so i think uh, there's a couple of people that have been very very inspiring to me more recently in my adult day uh, in my adult life i think there's two people i mentioned peter thompson i've been working with over the last three four years has had a profound influence on me but also my mentor and very very dear friend in toastmasters actually who was my uh, he was the president of the club that i joined in the early months of my membership um called nine Nigel Cutts, uh, who is a, a, a deeply, deeply compassionate man. It's one of those people who, as a leader, uh, has a real ability to emotionally connect and is a, and is sensitive to that and a superb listener. And I think for anyone in, in our lives, I think it's important to have someone, at least one person who you know will always be there to listen to you, act as a sounding board without judgment. And for me, that's, that's Nigel Cutts, who actually has written a book called Love at Work, um, for anyone who's interested, which is, uh, I think, a, a very, very compelling insight into um, leadership from a place of real emotional integrity and Nigel Cutts. Nigel Cutts, okay, and we'll include that in the show notes as well. And mm. talking about books, uh, what books have you gifted or reread over the years uh, that you would like to recommend? Well, I'm often asked the question about what's the what book do I recommend on public speaking, and I, I, I always I rather enjoyed Craig Valentine, the, the 1999 World Champion of Public Speaking's answer to that, which is, "Well, read all of them. There's there's no one magic book." But in response to that question, Dale Carnegie's book, "How to Develop Self Confidence and Influence People by Public Speaking," long title, Dale Car- Car- Carnegie's book is well worth reading. It's what 80 years old, but so many people have heard of how to win friends and influence people, how to develop self confidence and influence people by public speaking. I think is really super uh i think also a couple of other books that have had a big impact on me uh one is made to stick by chip and dan heath uh, written quite recently and i think a love lovely insight into how to really bring to life ideas in a way that they'll be more memorable uh and and then i think the third one that comes to mind is is Bounce, a book called Bounce by Matthew Saeed, that's S-Y-E-D, which is not about public speaking, more about the the power of practice. In fact, the strap line for the book is the myth of talent, the power of practice. So no no prizes for guessing what the basic thrust of that um, book is. And there's one particular story in there which still sticks with me. I I read it some years ago and I've read it since, but uh, in which he tells the story of Mozart and people say, oh, you know, Mozart, you know, just a genius composer, child prodigy. Well, what you realise, and I always remember Matthew Side coming to actually speak about this at the Professional Speaking Association chapter, of which I'm a member some years ago, terrific speaker. He said, when you actually look at it, you realise that what someone like Mozart had was an extraordinary upbringing. As a child, he had a world-class teacher of music in the form of his father. It was a complicated relationship, but it meant that by the time Mozart was about 15, he'd had more hours of piano practice, proper practice, than many professional pianists, or certainly certainly any amateur pianist, would have done in a lifetime. Surprise, surprise, the guy got very good. I think there's something very, very inspiring about that, that 
the power of practice. And this, this idea that somehow, oh, someone's just desperately talented is, I banned the word, you say, saying to my children that they're gifted or talented. Nonsense. <laughs> it's all down to your commitment to practice because with that you just get better. So Bounce by Matthew Said, I strongly recommend. Great, and, and and we'll include all that. And Craig Valentine's a friend of mine, and actually uh, the books that you recommend, one of his books, The Nuts and Bolts of Public Speaking, is really oh, yes. a fantastic yes. book. And, yes, uh, myself, it's a cracking book, absolutely. And he is he, he is the most ex- a most extraordinary teacher of public speaking, I think. I first met him yeah, so about 10 years ago, and I was blown away. He, he is really, really absolutely wonderful class yeah actually he is scheduled to come and speak here at the district uh, two conference here in seattle in fall Uh Uh, so it'll be good to see him again (laughs) after many years (laughs) very good very good (laughs) yeah and the other point that you mentioned is the practice the art of deliberate practice and uh, it it really stemmed from the research that was done by anders erickson who uh, found out that people who are world champions at any craft i mean there is a method to the madness and the sense that Mm. they went about really focusing on three aspects of uh, practicing, which is one, identifying an expert, and then like, you know, doing deliberate practice, which is stretching yourself outside your comfort zone so that you're constantly growing and learning, but then using a feedback loop to see how much you've progressed and then repeating and uh, rinsing the whole process all over again. And I think uh, that is is definitely... uh, an important factor if you really want to be a world class at any craft. I mean, mm. and I think that's a very important point that you make. Uh, my next question to you, Simon, is I know you've uh, traveled now internationally to give your keynote speeches. And is there any particular favorite place that you like to travel? And what about this place you value so much? <laughs> Many places. I, I think for me, I have, I think some of my fondest memories come from actually my visits to, well, there's two different places, if I may. One was to to Pakistan in 2010. Uh, I went twice uh, to Karachi and then on a second trip to Karachi in Islamabad. Uh, I found the warmth of the welcome there to be extraordinary. It was at a time when there was a, a whole variety of things in the, in the, in the press. And, I, and, and so there was a certain degree of tension, but but the the experience I had there and the people that I met, and it was still relatively early in my sort of seven years. So I was two years into my full time speaking career. Um, that had a very big I- impact on me. And and I think the other place is I, I went a number of times to to Kiev in Ukraine, both immediately before and during and after in the in the, in the months after. Uh, the the difficulties or the, the troubles just in in recent years, and uh, and I think I think what, what, the reason why it stands out again very very warm welcome culturally in terms of communication a very very different style from say uh, the United States or indeed or indeed uh, many countries in Western Europe um, I think there's a there's a there's a difference in in approach there's a directness and also a I think at first a, 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 a reserve, which even for someone British like me, the sense of reserve at first, which takes a bit of getting used to, and then you realise absolute hearts of gold beneath. 
<laughs> but at first, people, frankly, looked pretty serious. When I stepped up and I first met my uh, first group of 50-odd execs for a keynote I was giving on the first day, people looked pretty serious. Oh, well, blimey, have I done something to upset them? <laughs> of course, it didn't take long for me to realize that uh, it's just that's how people are. Um, so so I have very, very uh, positive memories of, of time spent in Kiev, too. And, and especially, I think, uh, that one of the last events, I did six events over a period of a couple of years, um, and I'm still in touch with people there. And I did a, a, a keynote at the Olympic Stadium, uh, not in the stadium, I should say, in the corporate conference center uh, in, the, in, the, in the arena building. And it was, for a, it was for a couple of hundred of senior execs for a major financial services institution in Kiev. And, and it was at the point where a number of their colleagues were, were, were unable to make the conference because of the, 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 the conflict in eastern Ukraine and also likewise in Crimea. And so, and just the, the the emotion, and I felt the sense of the sense of of of, of, of team spirit and supportiveness amongst the uh, these execs, who on many levels you could say are oh, well, kind of you know hard nosed financial services executives because they're all very senior, um, but it was you could really sense it in the room, and it and it had a very very powerful effect on me. I felt, um, especially since in their minds, of course, there was a, understandably a question of who's this guy flying in from the UK at a time like this with all the difficulties that Ukraine is facing to talk to us for two hours, you know, <laughs> which I. I'd had to address head on, of course, and just acknowledge that and say, I realize you when you look at me, you may think, what the hell are you doing here? You know, what do you know, etc, etc. Um, but I think I think it's it's a, a time like that. And it's true, of course, all over the world, in different places where you feel like you really are getting to see people with stripped of veneer. If you know, it goes back to this thing about honesty. I think you get to really sense these people for for who they are, without without necessarily the badge of title or a professional professional front. You know, in that situation, that those particular individuals were going through some very very difficult times, and and for for them to be to, to welcome me and to be receptive to the challenges that I pose them in terms of storytelling and drawing on personal experience, um, I found for me very very humbling. No, that is so great. And uh, Southeast Asia is uh, specifically known by known for its hospitality. I mean, mm. I have so many uh, friends uh, from the UK and Australia and uh, who've made uh, India and uh, some of the Southeast Asian nations their second home, essentially. And, uh, yes. you know, there's a strong uh, bonding between India and Australia and UK, specifically with cricket. So you mm. have all these uh, cricketers <laughs> having a second base back in India now. So now you're absolutely yeah. right. And uh, I think the important aspect really is to be open to uh cultures and as you travel yes. and and people are just amazing if you give them a chance to uh, relate and connect with you and uh, i think i think that's absolutely right and, I, and i've seen some of the in some of the literature on cross-cultural communication lots being made of the importance of following this protocol or that etiquette and and of course there's truth in that i, I spent time in china of course uh, before my master's in chinese then also having grown up as a child in saudi and i spent time in japan and visited india and of course north america both canada and and, and the u.s and and of course, there are all sorts of nuances which are specific to and very important to those cultures. But, but <laughs> I think running beneath that, there is there is a lot to say for universal uh, values. I think any audience, any any individual uh, will be respond will respond well to 
to kindness. They'll respond, they'll respond to somebody being sincere. And you can tell when someone is seeking to be sincere or not. And I genuinely believe that cuts across culture. Uh, it's, it, it's rather than getting too hung up about it. I mean, of course, there's certain things to be, to be sensitive to. Um, but, but I think, I, and I find this consistently working with folk in, in, in the Gulf region, for example, I may well make a comment or observe something which, you know, might seem a bit strange culturally in that particular setting. But we have a really good connection because, because they're honest with me, I'm honest with them, and we're respectful of each other. And I think you can always sense when you're, when you're being respected and when also you're being respectful of another individual and their organization and or perhaps their, 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 their nationality and or their faith and whatever it might be. And I think that, that cuts beneath, you know, whether or not your glasses is, is an inch too high when you're, when you're clinking glasses or whatever. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. And uh, that's uh, really an important point. Uh, the other question that comes up is having had all these travels across the globe and uh, uh, having had the experiences of uh, competing at the highest levels. And uh, what's your definition now uh, when you look at the ebb and flow of life? Uh, what's your definition of a successful life or a good life? <laughs> For it to be a life of choice, and that's not my line, that's actually from Peter Thompson, my mentor, business mentor, to be in a position to be leading a life of choice. That to me is success because, and that might be, a, and that choice might be one of great material affluence, or it might be a life of, of absolute austerity and, 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 and poverty. It's not, it's not a material thing. It's a, it's a leading a life where you're in a position to choose, make choices about where things go next. That, now, that's, and that, of course, I realize there's plenty of people who would disagree with that, but to me, that's my definition of it. And, and I can remember when, when I was first looking at the, looking seriously at the option of leaving my job and setting up on my own as, a, as an entrepreneur, which for me meant going through the world of, uh, of, of professional speaking and coaching and running workshops and so on. And I started thinking about it seriously after 2007 when I, when I went for the second time through to the semi-finals of the World Championships because that, that did have a very, very significant impact on my sense of self-belief of what, what it was possible for me to do uh, in speaking and the value of it. Um, I remember thinking to myself, okay, is this something that I'm willing to take a risk for? And it was before I had children that I was single at the time. And, and I remember thinking to myself, this, this professional world, uh, and I was thinking about it from a career point of view of, of speaking, of working one-to-one -one with people, creating information products perhaps, and, and workshops, seminars, and so on. I, what, what clinched it for me was, yeah, I love doing this because I lose track of time when I'm working with a group. That's a good sign. If you lose track of time, I think, if you, you know you love something, if you suddenly look at your watch, go, oh my goodness me, is that the time? I think was it Ken Robinson that said, an hour can feel like five minutes if you're doing something you love, whereas five minutes feels like an hour if you're doing something you hate. And I'd had too much of my time at various points in my career where I felt like five minutes felt like an hour. So I'd, I'd found something that I loved, but I thought, and this is something which I could imagine it's possible to earn a living from. That was obviously an important factor. I thought, yeah, it's, it's something where there is, there is a, that material is possible to actually uh, be paid and, and to and to earn a, a sensible income. I don't know what kind of income, but but it's possible to do it because I knew people who had done and were doing it. But crucially for me, I thought, do you know what? It, this is the kind of career where I thought 
it would be possible for me to walk my children to school, to collect them afterwards, to be there for bath time more often than I'm not, to be able to do, uh, to, to to be able to say, do you know what? Let's let's take three weeks off in the summer, rather than having to stick to just you know two weeks a year leave or whatever it is. And for me personally, that was that was very important. That sense of freedom, and and happily that that's how things have turned out. I think uh, it, it, getting the business started, and any entrepreneur listening to this will be well aware, I'm sure, of the the uh, the extraordinary intensity of the first year of a new business. And I launched literally in the heart of the credit crunch two weeks before Lehman Brothers went bust. Mm. So it was an interesting first year or two to get established. Um, but but by year three, I found myself where I thought, Do you know what, I can earn a living from this. I won't have to go back into the day job. And and I knew that regardless of whether I would be a very significant earner in the business or not, I thought, I know I will have choice. I will be able to say, I'm going to take that week off. I'm not going to work on that Tuesday because whatever it is. And it's and, and now as the father of two young children, I, I, I feel ex- extremely fortunate. And, and that's more important to me, having that choice than than anything else, actually. Uh, in terms of income, in terms of prestige, I, mean, I haven't had a promotion in nine years. I, mean, <laughs> I, you know, I, I started as a director of my own business. I'm still a director of my own business. <laughs> no, that is that is such a great point, and I think uh, I, I totally resonate with that uh, thought process about having the freedom, having the choice, and living life on your own terms. And I think what what I'm also hearing in your share here is uh, the clarity of purpose. And as Simon Sinek calls, like no knowing your why. And I think you mm. really uh, honed in on why did you want to pursue this career and yes. also uh, really uh, taking that plunge and the leap of faith uh, to yes. do this. And it seems yes. like, uh, you know, with any new business, any new venture, you are going to run into uh, the challenges the first couple of years. And it seems like by year three, uh, you know, you found some stability and uh, now yes. it's uh, growing by leaps and bounds. Yeah. And uh, that's great. That's so great. And congratulations it, on that. Thank you. It's just as you mentioned that, you, you reminded me of a conversation I had a year or two ago with a fellow entrepreneur who I know very, very well and respect deeply here in London. We're having a chat about legacy. And and, and I think he's been thinking now, having been running his own business for a good 10 years, about potentially making a change. And that maybe it's selling the business or making adjustments to how his level of involvement in that business. And, and we got into a conversation about legacy. And, and for him, as he was talking about it, what came across strongly, and I think this is absolutely sensible, this is absolutely true for many people. For him, the, the organization he's built, the people that he has employed, and the opportunities he's created for them, that that is a significant part of his legacy, along with the intellectual property and so on. And I think that's great. And he asked me the question about legacy. He said, because, you know, you don't, he said, Simon, you don't seem to be employing people. You know, there's people I collaborate with, but I don't have a particular, I don't have a formal associate model for my business, for example. I don't have offices where I'm employing people. It's quite deliberately, very much by choice. There's a lot to be said for for that, for, for, for the associate employment model, but it just happens to be one that for me, I think there's ways to scale and develop by a different route. But he said, so what, what for you is legacy? And it's the first time I'd really been asked about it. And what I said to him was, and I think this is still the case, which is that for me, the, 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 the legacy of knowing that, that there are people in the world who have been influenced by the time they and I have spent together, whether that's one-to-one or in a workshop or whatever, uh, that for me is meaningful 
a meaningful enough legacy. It's not an institutional legacy, but it's knowing that there are there are hundreds of school children who may just remember one tiny bit of one tiny piece of the workshop that that I delivered with them, having been in a hundred or so schools, or the executive who tells stories that are just that little bit more personal than they might do otherwise, or that person who feels just that little bit more confident when that kind of thing. Just knowing that's going on. My father's a doctor. I mentioned to you. You know, for any medic, the the knowledge that there are people that are healthy who before were deeply sick, the person who had the life-saving operation, the person who, who was able to spend that bit more time with their grandchildren, whatever it is, you may never see those people again. But I think there's a lot to be said for that invisible legacy and feeling that you've made a contribution in that way, rather than feeling that I've you know, built some big empire that then gets handed on to somebody. I, I, that's not to say that that building of an institution and a formal concrete um, business and organization doesn't have merit. I think it's a, it's a fantastic thing, fantastic thing, and it clearly is important for, and rightfully, for many, many people. But for me personally, as I say, I see it quite differently. And, and I think it's just, as you said about clarity, it's just so valuable to have clarity in your own mind. As my mentor, Peter, often reminds me, resistance is created by lack of clarity. And when you've got clarity, everything else becomes so much easier. Oh, I like that. <laughs> no, that's beautiful. Resistance creates clarity, uh, lack of clarity. And that's, I, I like it that. It may have come from the chip down Heath uh, originally. But yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's, it's really, when that's applied, it, it's, it's, it's extraordinary what kind of breakthroughs can result from that. No, that is fantastic. And I want to kind of get into some of the questions, uh, should I shift gears here a little bit and get into mm. some of the questions that we've received from our audience. And uh, we may not be able to get through all of them in the interest of time, but I'll try to see mm. uh, as much as uh, as we can fit in. Uh, yes. So the first one is, uh, what is the best piece of advice you've received as it relates to public speaking? The one that really sticks with me and it was passed on to me from bill gove who was a, a successful professional speaker in the u.s in the in the 20th century make a point tell a story mm. or tell a story to make a point so simple and yet so profound make a point tell a story and for a keynote make a point tell a story make another point tell another story and it's it's a well-known tip and piece of advice for public speaking but i think it is it continues to resonate and i think it is it's a piece of advice i i pay forward to many many people that i meet that's what comes to mind for me yeah no that is such a good point and uh, talking about storytelling and and this is something that i know you are a strong proponent and advocate of that people really do not uh, take full uh, capitalize on their own personal stories because they didn't, mm. they underestimate the mm. value of their own personal experiences. So yes. going back to that point, uh, Simon, my question to you is, uh, what is the art of creating an impactful speech or telling a good story or how should one go about preparing and writing it or going about it? Any, any tips on mm. that or any thoughts on that? Yes, I, I think it starts with your having two choices and it i say choice it may be something that you work on consciously or it may be something that just percolates in the back of your mind as you're out and about on the bus at work but fundamentally you've got two simple choices one is to get really clear on a particular point or message you want to get across and then you ask yourself how do i know that point is true or important and it's that question that's key. How do I know it's true or important? Whatever the point is you're wanting to make. Because that question of how you know it's true or important invites your mind to start reflecting on experience you've got 
in support of that point. In, in my view, it's impossible to believe strongly in a point without personal experience of some sort to back it up. It's always there. It just might be hidden. It's a bit like nuggets of gold. We, we know that they exist, but they're not just lying around. They have to be dug for. They have to be mined. And I think the same is true with the right story to bring to life a point. So just because it doesn't come straight away shouldn't put you off. But clarity on the point you're wanting to make is really key. And certainly, if I think about the World Championship final speech that I gave a few weeks back in when in Vancouver, um, I was very, that, that speech came about as a result of me having a very clear point I wanted to make about understanding each other better. And then me thinking to myself, how do I know that's true? And then eventually coming across or revisiting an experience from my school days that, that for me, was my proof. The other option is to, is to reflect on life experience that you've got and do it the other way around. I think, like, well, what are the moments in my life that have really had an impact on me? Just as you kind of been asking me about a number of different experiences in my life and, and what in, what influence they've had on me. I think, well, in you know, my school days, what what do I remember from school? Was it a particular person? Was it a particular time? Was, was there a particular tipping point? A particular relationship, perhaps, or uh, likewise, university days. If one if if one's had student experiences or or an a particular job and and it doesn't take very long to come up with some some moments and it doesn't matter at this point what the meaning of those stories might be it's just to identify them because if you can if you can source right now and still remember an experience from five years ago ten years ago there's a reason why you still remember that and from that then Having you know, reflecting on that experience, having to think about it, perhaps talking to others about it, will emerge options for what the message might be. So I think it, it, it relies on having a clear start point. And either you start with the message first and then find the story, or you start with the story first, then you find the message. You might find that one story actually has the potential to communicate a range of different messages depending on the situation you're in, which is one of the beauties of stories, of course. They can be, they can be adapted to, to communicate a different message for a different audience. So I think that's the key start point. I think that as far as the actual relating of the story is concerned, I think the single best piece of advice I can give is to get as clear as you possibly can on what I call the critical moment it's the tipping point, it's the key moment, it's the moment of insight, it's the penny dropping, it's the light bulb going on, which explains how and why the story ends in the way that it did. And and getting really clear on that moment, and it might be a passage of time, it might not literally be a moment, but that that figurative moment in the story and then the zooming in on that just like a film director would zoom in on a critical moment through and there might be atmospheric music it might be in slow motion it might be seen from multiple perspectives there's all sorts of things that filmmakers will do to to really draw out the significance of a particular moment i think battleship potemkin and the famously famous scene of the of the pram going down the steps and the mother losing control of it which of course i think was later picked up and and and, and used in the uh, in uh, in the untouchables i think it was during the time of the prohibition that scene it, it, there is no doubt in the mind of the viewer that that's a critical moment <laughs> it's really brought to life the same is true with our storytelling and the more precise one is the more you can bring that to life for the audience 
No, that is so uh, great. And I think uh, just to highlight and summarize uh, your sharing here, I think it's like really being clear. Clarity is power, as they say. And then mm. mining for gold, literally, I mean, going back into your personal experiences and then looking for those critical moments that have significantly yes. altered uh, the tipping point of your life. And then the second, the other aspect of it is what is that one message that you want to communicate and then building a story around that? Yes. And I think, yes. and I, I totally distinctly remember uh, what you just shared about that uh, moment. It's, it was that Andy Garcia moment in that movie, Untouchables, uh, Kevin Costner mm. and uh, Sean Connery. It's absolutely, it's still so fresh in my mind. And those mm. are, those are the moments in movies that really sticks with you when it's yes. well. Uh, no, that's yes. fantastic. Uh, now, the other question I have for you is, uh, now you've been in the speaking business, the professional speaking business for close to uh, many, many years now. And uh, so what are the top things that you wish you knew more about when starting out in this profession? Well, I started, my business launched on the 28th of August, 2008. And it doesn't take very long to figure out what kind of economic climate we're in at that time. And what do I wish I'd known then? I think, first of all, the... I think that I underestimated the power of personal experience, even though by that point I'd had significant contest experience. I hadn't appreciated how powerful seemingly trivial and everyday experience can be in making a point. So that's the first point. I think secondly, from, from a business point of view, I've, I've come to learn, for me, it's been a very significant journey on pricing, actually. And, and it, it's, I think it took me in my early years, I, I really was very unclear about the distinction between price and value. And I can remember having a conversation with a client of mine who's chairman of a, of a major private equity firm saying to me, uh, it, actually not, not so long ago, actually saying it's, it's extraordinary, he said, how easy it is for you on that side of the table to only see things from your side of the table. You see the fee, whereas we see the fact we've got a number of people who just we cannot afford for them to screw this presentation up. <laughs> we just cannot afford, provided that the solution f tackles the problem. The, the, va the, the value of that makes the price, it's a factor, but it, it just, it, it blows many concerns that many and doubts that so many entrepreneurs and freelancers and professionals and so on have about fees. It just blows those concerns out the water. So I think that's a, I think my having a much better understanding, clear understanding of that earlier, it's about value, the, the value of the solution rather than pricing for time. That, that would have been nice to have been clearer on earlier. And, and then I think the final thing is that I, I actually, with hindsight, I, I wish I had pushed harder on the creation of products than I did. I love being with audiences. I have no regrets about spending masses of time with, with say, with teenagers in school, with a prisoner in Brixton jail, with, I, I was visiting just as, as Corey Valentine's point out this talk, but I too was only a visitor. <laughs> so, yeah, it was amazing experience working with refugees, with social entrepreneurs, teachers, police officers, business executives, MBAs, academics, politics. Amazing mix of what an amazing thing, and yet I think there are so many other people I could have reached 
remotely through uh, the creation of more products sooner and which is why i'm so excited about high impact speaking because it's distilled all of the the best stuff from my workshops and all the thousands of hours i spent in delivering sessions into a nine-hour program that it's it's i'm thinking to myself finally i've actually done that and it was peter my mentor this is hence why mentors are so powerful they're so valuable prodding me saying come on simon it's time to create this product uh i wish i'd done that earlier uh because it, you're able to reach so many more people and of course from a business point of view it's it's a very very uh good way to scale a business too you get the right product that's solving meaningful problems for people then of course you, know, you don't always have to be in the room to be a value for people yeah, I think uh, the two points here is value uh, triumphs over pricing and scaling with informational products. I think those are two, value and scale. I think that's really mm-hmm. uh, the key aspects of a successful business. Uh, jumping on to our next section, and we'll kind of like uh, get into this rapid fire round. And this is mm. uh, the section <laughs> where I'm going to ask you a bunch of fun questions, uh, Simon, and it's the first response <laughs> that comes to your mind. And uh, Of course, course uh, my <laughs> <laughs> Yes, and uh, it's if you feel... Uh, the need to elaborate on it please feel free to do so but again this is the rapid fire round so are you ready i'm ready all right so the first question is uh, simon whose brain would you like to pick Hmm. ken robinson Hmm. the second question who's your favorite music band arcade fire hmm if you had to, <laughs> interesting, <laughs> interesting. Yes. <laughs> if you had the season tickets uh, for Manchester United or Real Madrid, what uh, what would you choose? Uh, Manchester United, no question. My mother's from Manchester. Mm. She'd have words with me if I said otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> the single most valuable thing you've learned in life. The. The importance of close, long-term friendships. Mm, I like that. That's beautiful. The next question is, if you could be successful in another profession, which would you choose? If we were having this conversation 10 years ago, I'd say professional rugby. However, that's not realistic since I'm now 40. So in, in another career, I would say in documentary film production hmm that's uh, that's really uh, interesting and then the final question within the rapid fire round and that is if you could have <laughs> any message of your choice on a billboard what would that be <laughs> visit highimpactspeaking.com for a business <laughs> there you go yeah, I like out, that check out the video um, <laughs> but, but let me just think it for, uh, pause for a moment it would be something like, but what if you could? Mm. That, wasn't, that wasn't pre-planned, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it would be something like, but what if you could? No, that's uh, that's great. As as uh, as the saying we have here on the west coast uh, of the United States is, you know, why not? Right? It's uh, yeah. It's like why not? And that's that's yeah. the difference about. That's why we have so many uh, amazing companies that have been built in the Silicon yes. Valley uh, where yes. people ask that question often. I, I like yours too. It's beautiful. And then moving on to our final section, I just have last three questions for you, and this is a wrap up uh, section. The first question is. 
what is your current personal or business passion project that you're working on and uh, what are you looking forward to in the next six months to a year well to take the second of those questions first i am so excited to have created the the video program so talking to more people about that and making that available to people and building getting some real momentum without having just launched will be a major priority for me over the next six to 12 months i think in terms of that that's something which i've, I've created it took well over a year to do it so it's good that that is now that's created and now it's all about um spreading the word i think as far as the live passion project for me from a from a creation point of view over the coming months it's it is the development of a new keynote uh, which is which will for which the source of inspiration is the semi-final speech that i built from scratch for this year in the contest around honesty the the the, the title of the speech is to be perfectly honest and and the process of developing that and honing that through the contest over the five months to get, which is the speech that in effect got me into the world final, was a speech that I, I took enormous satisfaction in, in developing. It was very frustrating at times, of course, as any the creation of any work of art that you feel strongly about mm. yeah, it can be. But the, the development of that into a 30-minute, 45-minute keynote is my is my current passion project and it's an exciting prospect oh that is great and i wish you all the best on that and then uh, the next question is uh, the three things you're grateful for in life today my family for sure for which i which is my wife jenny and our two children age six and three i feel most grateful for first of all and then secondly i uh, continue to have a very good relationship with my parents and and that's been very a very strong relationship uh, as long as i can remember so i feel very fortunate in that regard and then thirdly uh, absolutely that close circle of really really good friends on whom i know i can absolutely depend and whom i'd like to think they can also depend on me it's about it's about six of them I, there's a there's a slightly wider network of good friends that goes a bit beyond that but but there there are about six people on whom whom i see regularly and and our children are similar sort of age and i do anything for them and journey through life with friends because of course you can choose friends in a way that you can't always with family <laughs> uh, to journey through life with really good friends uh, over the long term i think is a, is a wonderful wonderful privilege and so that's that i also feel very very grateful for no oh, it's a beautifully uh uh, shared and and I want to acknowledge you for a few things here, Simon. Uh, the first thing being, what an incredible role model you are for everyone who's listening to this podcast <laughs> and you're sharing. Because, I mean, it started with that moment, that breakthrough moment, uh, if you will, uh, stepping and sharing your personal uh, stories about growing up and the childhood, mm. and uh, and that gave. That gives so much of confidence to so many people out there uh, in the in the world to really be vulnerable and like banish your fears yes. and step in outside your comfort zone. So what a role model yeah. you've been. And then secondly, okay. showing us that it is possible to pursue your passion. It is possible to go after your dreams and like taking that, uh, making that choice 
after being really clear as to professional speaking and public speaking was your calling, your vocation, and that's what you ended up doing, and mm. and uh, that's so beautiful. And and the importance that uh, you place on uh, family and friends, and and that is uh, that that is again a great example for all of us to say, you know, that that's really what it means to live a good life. Friendship and relationships matter, and so thank you for. Uh, for your amazing, amazing sharing on this podcast. And uh, one final question I got for you, and this is how we wrap up all our interviews, and that is, why do you think people should listen to Wisdom of Friends? Because certainly I found in the conversation with you uh, coming into this without a preset plan for, for exactly what I would say, I found that uh, that if 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 you as a listener are wanting honesty from people with enough time in the conversation to really get under the skin of some things, then this is the place to come because there's things, Cal, that, uh, that you've prompted me to unearth and draw back to and call on in my own experience, which I wouldn't have thought we would be talking about in this conversation. And I, and I know that that's the case with other speakers too, other guests, I should say, on the, on the show. So, and, it's, and it's when you really dig beneath the surface and understand what, what has really been happening in somebody's life, I think that you get insight that, that can then be constructive and, and influence one's own life. And I've certainly found that the other way around when listening to people. So this podcast is a place to come. And I've, a real pleasure to, to spend time uh, with you on the show, Callan. Just delighted to have been invited and uh, onwards and upwards. Great. I really appreciate that. And again, thank you for taking the time to be uh, on the show. Valued our conversation. And for those of us who's listening, uh, we'll wrap up with that. And if you like what you heard, please share. Don't be shy. Thanks for listening to the Wisdom of Friends show with Cal Aras. If you like what you just heard, we hope you'll pass along our web address, theglobalcontribution.com. To your friends and colleagues, be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous episodes. This has been a Seven Symphonies production. Join us next time for another edition of the Wisdom of Friends.